0: Okay, now it's true, isn't it, that significant deaths, significant deaths have a way of kind of lodging their way into our memories. Significant deaths, a way of kind of lodging their way into our minds. I'm sure you know what what I mean. Many of us in here, for example, remember where we were the night that Princess Diana died. I'm right, aren't I? Many of us remember exactly where we were and uh, how we responded when we heard that princess Diana had died. I certainly remember where I was. I was at a party at the time uh, and it was a, a full room, a very, very busy room and what we wanted to do was we wanted to change the music. The music was awful. So somebody went across and actually decided to switch on the radio and news of her death came blaring into this full room and it was very, very strange to see how people reacted. There was this kind of... F- stunned silence, you know, that, that room, and it really was a busy, packed, big room, and it, just, it was just this calm that just drifted across. The, everyone responded to this death, this significant death, in the same way. Well, this morning, what we're going to do just now is we're going to consider not just a significant death, we're going to consider the most significant death there has ever been, the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. More precisely, what we're going to do. Is we're going to think about the reactions to this death that Mark records in this book, in his gospel, the responses that we see in the gospel of Mark. And friends, God willing, we will learn there, we will see there, in those reactions to death, how we are to live. And how we are to live for the glory and the honor of the Lord Jesus Christ. Responses to Jesus' death. And the first of these responses, surely we have to notice or pay attention to the women, don't we, at the cross? So the first heading, the first title we'll maybe have this morning is this, the women's belief. The women, the women at the cross, their belief. That's the first thing. Okay. Don't you agree, given... Given the topic, given where we are in Mark's Gospel, that today, this morning, more than ever, we have to have the scene vividly in our minds, don't we? And you, friends, see exactly where we are at this point in Scripture. We are at the cross. That Jesus' body hangs limp in death before us. The, the centurion's declaration has just sounded out into the dark sky you remember truly this man was the son of god you see the picture you see the scene but what is this that we see like as we continue this account we we, we learn that there's an, there's another group of people there's a group of women now they are standing a little way off not too far away and you see what they're doing this group of women we're told that they are standing there together and they are they are looking on at calvary now thankfully mark he identifies some of the women for us doesn't he did you notice that i think it's verse 40 that amongst others that gives us a sense that there's actually quite a group of them amongst others we've got mary magdalene We've got Mary, the mother of James the younger, and Joseph salute. So, 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 now, who are these? These are women who have, we're told, ministered to Jesus, but there's, there, these are women who have actually followed Jesus up to Jerusalem for the feast. Now, here's the thing, okay? I think this morning we learned two very crucial lessons. Lessons for the women of London City Presbyterian Church. We learn two critical lessons in these verses for the women young and old if I'm allowed to say that. The women young and old of L C P C Two lessons for the ladies of this church. So what are they? Well tell you what, tell you what, you ready? For the first one, would you look again at verse forty? Let's come on, let's look at the text. What have you got in verse forty? So you've got the women. Now where are they? They're looking they're at Calvary. What are they doing? They're looking on, right? So you get the idea, don't you? They're surveying the scene at Golgotha, and they're taking it in, right? That's verse 14. Now look at verse 47. What do you have? Verse 47. What's going on there? You've got Jesus being laid in the tomb. So you've got the burial of Jesus. Who's there in verse 47? The women are there. What does Mark tell us they're doing? He tells us that they're looking on. So the women, they're at the death, they're at the burial, and again, they're taking note of the burial. They're there, they're surveying the scene at the burial as well. Then, last one, okay, last one. Look at verse 1 of chapter 16. The resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. You've got the empty tomb. Who is is—who is there? You've got the women. You've got the women looking on. Do you, do you see what's going on here? Do you, do you see the point? Who are these women? These are the very people that God has chosen as the key witnesses to the gospel events. Who are the women? They're the very people God has chosen for the world, but to tell the world of these events as eyewitnesses. Eyewitnesses! Now, you know and I know, this is an incredible and remarkable detail, don't we? That God would choose the women for this? Because what do we know about the ancient world? We know this very well, don't we? Women, <laughs> women were not trusted. Women were, were seen as being entirely untrustworthy, weren't they? It was a very patriarchal society. It was men. It was the guys who were the center of the society. Women, of course, were not even allowed to be a witness in court. They weren't even allowed to be in there. And what does God do? God chooses women. He chooses women as the witnesses to the most important events in all of human history. Aren't you with me? Isn't it bizarre? Isn't it, isn't it marvelous? Isn't it remarkable? And isn't it also very challenging for the women of LCPC? Because what do you see when you look at Mark chapter 15? You see one of the primary functions One of the key responsibilities in your Christian life. What does God want? God doesn't just want Christian men. He wants Christian women to bear witness to the gospel. He wants his female followers to be engaged in evangelism. He wants women to be actively telling people of the goodness of Christ Jesus. So I pause and I slow down. I simply ask you, Christian women young... And old, at this point in your life, not 10 years ago, not 20 years ago, but now, is that the focus? Is it? Are you telling people? Are you praying about your witness? Are you, are you desperately looking for opportunities to tell people of the wonder of the gospel and what Christ Jesus has done? Is that real for you? Are you telling people what you have been shown and seen by the Holy Spirit? The death? the burial, but the resurrection of the Son of God. What did I say two minutes ago? I said that there were two lessons for the ladies, for the women of LCPC. So we see the women as witnesses, but there's something else here as well. Now, I wonder if you have seen uh, the film, 2004 film, Crash Have you seen it? I've mentioned this before from the pulpit, I think. It won the Oscar for best film uh, that year. It was a film, and I'm trying to think who was in it, Sandy Newton, Matt Dillon, a film about race relations in Los Angeles. Do you remember it? Now, the startling thing about the film, or the unusual thing, the appealing thing about the film, was the way that the story Crash was told. You will know what I mean if you've seen it there was a lot of what we might call narrative switches in Crash. So you would be watching the film and the story would be being told from one character's point of view. And you'd be getting really into the film and then what happens? All of a sudden, there'd be a switch and the story would be told from another character's point of view. Do you see what I mean? This kind of narrative switch was happening. Now, I'm asking you, if you see that has just taken place in mark's gospel i think about that for a moment like right throughout the book from the beginning of the book who has been the focus of mark's gospel you probably to me jesus (laughs) yes but who's been the focus of mark's gospel actually it has been the men the men around the lord isn't that true from word one it's been about the male disciples Isn't that what Mark's gospel has been about? It's been about their calling, their commissioning, their ministry, their training. It's been about the failings even of the male male disciples. And all of a sudden, right now, as Mark just closes the book, what does he do? There's this narrative switch. It was about the men. Suddenly, Suddenly, from nowhere... Like the focus, the spotlight is on the women. It's the women under the microscope. And I asked you this morning, do you understand and see why that is? Why has there been this change? Do you see why? Because the men have run. The focus is on the women at the end of Mark's Gospel, because what do we know of the male disciples? They've fled. They've abandoned the Lord Jesus Christ. That is why the focus here is on the women. And I really, as your minister, I think this brings us to a... Oh, it's a a tough thing. It's a difficult topic that we've got to wrestle with. Because if you've been a Christian for any length of time, friend, you'll have seen the same things I have in various churches you've been involved with. Isn't it true that very often Christian men, and especially Christian men of a certain age... That they seem to fall away from the Lord. Haven't you seen that? Haven't we seen that in the churches that we've been in? That Christian men, men of a certain age, they, they seem to, to to fall out of love with the Lord. I'm not saying, of course, that they cease to to become Christians, but uh, through this absence of personal prayer, through this lack of spiritual disciplines, they seem to lose the, the, the zeal. The zeal that they once had for the Lord Jesus Christ. Haven't we seen this? Now that is heartbreaking. And it's disastrous for churches, but do you know what is worse? Very often those Christian men, they lead those around them away from the Lord Jesus Christ as well. And haven't we seen that? You know, a, a Christian father's lack of Christian love filter through to his kids. Or a or a Christian husband's lack of zeal and passion filter to his spouse. We've seen it. It is disastrous for families. But isn't there a lesson here? And isn't there a lesson here for the women of this church? Do you see what the lesson is, ladies? Even if all of the men in your life, even if they all fall away, you must not move one inch from Calvary Hill even if even if it's your husband even if it's your Christian children even if all of the men of your church abandon the Lord Jesus Christ you must not move not one inch you must not take your eyes off that cross isn't that what we see here ladies do not take your eyes off the only man in your life who will never ever 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 let you down so we see the women's belief a second thing we see here is Joseph's bravery, his bravery, um, because we, we've considered these women, we've looked away, we've seen the women at the side, the cross looking on. We've got, we, surely we've got to deal with this man, Joseph, don't we? As this man who suddenly is mentioned from nowhere just comes on. From stage right and appears in the center here, Joseph. So who is this man Joseph? Who's Joseph? Okay, well, we learn something, very basic thing about him from the title that he's given. You notice the title? It's not just Joseph, it's Joseph of Arimathea. So he's from a town a little bit outside of Jerusalem to the northwest, right? What else do we learn? We learn something about his position. Do you notice what Mark tells us about Joseph? He was a respected member of the council, the Sanhedrin, the religious establishment. Do you begin to see the picture that's being built up of Joseph there? Matthew adds that he was a rich man. Who's Joseph? Joseph's the creme de la creme. He very much is, like Joseph of Arimathea. He is a bit of a high flyer. and He is one of Jerusalem's top 1%. Okay, he's a, he's a high flyer, is Joseph of Arimathea. We probably shrug our shoulders at that, don't we? Because isn't it the next detail that Mark records that is much more intriguing to you and to me? You see what we're told? We're told that Joseph, this rich, wealthy man, was looking for the kingdom of God. Do you understand what that tells us about Joseph? He was a godly man. In fact, John's gospel really spells it out for you. Who's Joseph? Do you know what John tells us? (laughs) Joseph was a disciple. He was a follower. He was a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that lovely? And I tell you this, I love the way in which... Joseph's kind of devotion towards the Lord Jesus Christ comes out in the text. Because do you see what he does? Do you see the tender way that Joseph cares for Jesus' body? Friends, did you notice that? What does he do, Joseph? He runs to a shop. He buys the most expensive linen to wrap Jesus' body. And then in that scene that's so often depicted in Christian art, do you see what Joseph does next? He has... Jesus body brought down from the cross. You can see the care, you can see the love. What does he do with this corpse? He has it laid in a very, very special place. He has Jesus body laid in a new tomb. It is a tomb carved out of the rock. In fact, you know what we know? It's Joseph's own tomb. Now you see it, don't you? There's there's affection, isn't there? from Joseph there's this love there's this tenderness there's care it's special he's a disciple he loves Jesus do you know what I do not think for a moment that that is the Holy Spirit's main point for us this morning I really don't see if we were new to this section of scripture what might we ask at this point we might say well how on earth did Joseph get his hands on (laughs) the body the body What gives this guy from Arimathea the right to, to, to take down Jesus' body? But we know the answer, don't we? In verse 43, what has Joseph done? What is the key thing here? What's he done? He's gone to Pilate and he has requested this body. Now, to you and to me this morning, that might seem the most mundane of details, does it? That Joseph went to Pilate to ask for the body. It seems mundane. I'm a minister. <laughs> so one thing that I know is that when people die, they get buried. right? I, even I know this. So this seems like Joseph would ask for the body. Seems mundane. It seems obvious, right? Understand that this was not how the Romans rolled. You see, friend, what the Romans would do is that they would leave the dead body of a crucified victim upon The cross. Now do you understand how bleak and how miserable that is? To act as a deterrent, they would leave the body up there sometimes for two, for three, for four days to decompose. At best they would do is take the body down and chuck it in a mass grave. There was none of this. There was none of this proper burial. There was none of this honouring of the dead. Joseph going to Pilate's an unheard of. Thing it just simply, simply wasn't done, and I want you to think about that. This morning, friend, think about what Joseph was risking. Do you understand? Going to Pilate. He was asking to honor an alleged traitor to Rome. Do you see it? See what he's risking here? By making this request for the body from Jesus. Do you understand what he's doing? He's aligning himself to Jesus when, think of it, all of his colleagues, every single one of the Sanhedrin, they've just dismissed Jesus as a fraud, as a fake, as a blasphemer. Do you understand what Joseph doing? He's risking everything. Look at this, it's mundane. He goes to Pilate for the body. He's risking his reputation, he's risking his status. I think he's risking his life and all for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now do you see the point? It's not just about the care of Joseph. What's the point? It's that word in verse forty-three. This was one courageous thing to do. This was a brave and bold move. From Joseph. And again, London City Presbyterian Church. I think that is a difficult subject for you and I to deal with. What we have to understand is that bravery was one of the great chief marks of the New Testament church. Do you hear that? So the idea of boldness, the idea of courage amongst Christians was one of the chief characteristics of the apostolic church. And if we're honest with ourselves this morning, isn't it true that boldness and bravery and courage, it's almost entirely absent from the contemporary church, from the modern church, and isn't it sorely lacking from London City Presbyterian Church? Isn't it? Like, let me give you this to chew on as you chew on your lunch later on. Isn't this true, if we search our hearts, that the real reason for our ineffectiveness in evangelism is not a lack of opportunity. And we always say it is and it's not. And the real reason for our ineffectiveness in evangelism isn't a lack of church programs or church courses, is it, really? What, if we're honest with ourselves, prayerfully, what is the real reason for our deficiencies in evangelism? Isn't it a lack of courage? Isn't it? isn't it our lack of bravery and boldness now as a congregation is there anything because we feel feeble right don't we we feel you know ill-equipped and empty with us is there anything that you and i can do is there there is isn't there You know what it is? We can do what the New Testament church did in that first reading that we had today in Acts chapter 4. And what did the New Testament church do? They knew how feeble they were. They knew how ill-equipped they seemed and felt. What did they do? They prayed for bravery. They got together and they called out to God for courage and for boldness. And what happened? God made them bold. He made them brave the very womb they were in. It shoot to its foundations. They were bold. And we need to do that. If we are going to be faithful as a congregation, we need to cry to God to make us brave and courageous for the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to ask God to make us like Joseph of Arimathea. People who are willing to risk... Everything for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And thirdly and lastly, we see Pilate's bewilderment. The woman's belief. Joseph's bravery. Pilate's bewilderment. Boys and girls, we've encountered Pilate before. Who is Pontius Pilate? Anyone? Who's Pontius Pilate? Is he a? Okay, he's a Roman prefect, Roman ruler, brilliant, Roman governor. Now I'm saying in that title, the heading, the sermon there, that he's bewildered. Point. Pilate is shocked. So what is it that's surprising Pilate? Let me turn it to you and let me ask you this question. Have you ever thought about why the Romans chose crucifixion as their method of execution have you ever given that i mean we are so used to in the church the idea of crucifixion on the cross have you ever spent any time thinking why did they choose crucifixion how would you answer that i think a lot of us would say because it was the most painful death imaginable crucifixion okay yeah and that's true that's part of it listen though the romans chose crucifixion because it dragged out the pain they chose crucifixion not just because it was the most painful way to die they chose it because it dragged out the death i was reading contemporary sources this week and it was saying this that usually it was two full days or three full days that a person would hang upon the cross you see dragging out the death that was commonplace that was the usual expected thing and do you see why Pilate is surprised in Mark chapter 15 Joseph of Arimathea comes to him knocks on the door comes in and says Jesus is dead he's only been on the cross for a matter of six hours and Pilate is hearing what? he's already dead and, and Pilate cannot believe his ears this is, he's bewildered by this now For you and for me, doesn't that raise a theological question? Doesn't it raise a technical question? Because what are you asking? If you engage with this, what are you asking? Why does Jesus, our Lord, die more quickly than anyone else? Are you asking? Like why is it when when most people would take three days to, to succumb to this death, that our Lord in His full humanity, how is it that our Lord dies in a matter of six hours? You're asking that question, are you not asking that question? Let me try and answer it like this. Uh, I remember when I was at university, sitting an exam that I will never, ever, ever forget. And I've got to be honest with you. I hadn't studied for the exam at all I had left it far like my revision had gone out the window who knows why there was maybe football on the TV or who knows what it was I had not revised properly for this exam and then the exam approached so I adopted the worst revision strategy you can imagine students in here you're not allowed to do this what I decided to do was only study three topics for this exam and you've got to understand, that there were 25 topics uh, that could appear, and I would be asked to write essays on. on you know, given a choice of five, and I've narrowed it down to three topics. So foolish! I'd run out of time, and then the day of the exam arrives, and you can imagine oh, that trepidation, that feeling of illness, and I've been up all night studying these three topics. I go into the exam hall, and I take my seat, and pick up my pen, and I turn over the exam page. How many? Remember, 25 topics. There's only five. How many of the three uh, do you think uh, appeared on my my page? Three appeared on my page, and I, I couldn't believe it. It's what my dad would call a fluke and it was, and I for once in my life, I aced the exam for once, because it was all there, I'd just been reading it, so I just sat down and I boosted through this exam, this was easy, and I just went straight through it, wrote from top to bottom, and I read it over and I, and I did it, and I just, it was beautiful, it was beautiful, and then this happens, I looked up at the clock, there's always a clock in the exam hall, do you know what I saw, I had an hour and a half left of exam time and, and I couldn't believe it You know, like, there was nothing I could do I had read over my essays a couple of times and made all the corrections an hour and a half so what did I do? it was beautiful, it was a great moment what I did was just put my pen down move my seat on with the jacket everyone else was beavering away and I just strolled out there why? first one out of the room why? My job was done. My job was done. Do you see it? Isn't that what was happening at Golgotha? Isn't that what was happening on Calvary Hill? Do you understand that the Lord Jesus Christ could die more quickly than other people? Why? Why? to underline this morning to you the sense of completion the sense of accomplishment in his death the sense of finality you know as well as I do that at Golgotha a cup of wrath was being poured out upon the Son of God but Jesus could lay down his life earlier than the most why? because that cup had run dry hadn't it? that he faced more spiritual torment than anyone will ever face in death. He, he braced it all. He faced it all. All of this punishment. But he could lay his life down. Why? Because that punishment was over. That punishment was completed. It was done. It was utterly finished. Do you see it? Isn't it marvelous? The Lord Jesus Christ died in a matter of hours and not in a matter of days. Why? Because his father's justice was appeased. See it? His justice, his wrath was satisfied. Jesus died earlier than most. Why? Because his job was done. If you're a Christian this morning, I'll fill your heart with utter joy. Because do you see what it means for you, Christian friend? It means as you're sitting here in this room just now, what is true for you? You have no punishment to face Is not it that because Jesus Christ faced all of this punishment you have nothing on you that forevermore as long as you live into eternity you Christian friends will never face the anger of God never face the wrath of God never face the, the judgment the punishment of God why? because all of that that was on you all of it was born by the Lord Jesus Christ in those hours on Calvary Hill I, for one, I I rejoice. I, for one, think that is good news. Jesus Christ died in a few hours. And you see the answer now. You see why. What did he say? It is finished. His job was done. Now, I end with this this morning. If you are not saved... In Christ Jesus. Now if you are in here this morning and you have not bowed the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ, you have not confessed your sin to Jesus, I'm wondering and I'm asking you, what do you make of this? I really wonder what do you make of this? You've heard the good news of the gospel proclaimed to you today. You have seen the responses from the people around the cross. You You have to answer to God at some stage. So what do you make of of this? Do you understand what God is offering you in the gospel today? Do you understand that he's saying that that sin that is on you, that sin that burdens you, the guilt that weighs you down, he's saying that comes off furthermore. You see, what's an offer? Do you see that the God offers you through the Lord Jesus Christ? He offers you not just peace, not just a nice feeling, but eternal reconciliation, eternal peace with God Himself. That's what's on offer here. So what will it be this morning for you? What will it be? Will it not be these two things? Will it not be repentance of your sin and a turning to the Lord Jesus Christ in trust and belief? Will those two things, will they not be your response? Your response to this, what is the most significant of all deaths? Let's pray.